0: Father, we come to you this morning, I've already said it, as needy people. It's been a tough week for some of us. We've had three families in our body this week. Have beloved family members leave this earth to depart and go home and be with you. Their joy right now is immeasurable. We do not have minds to understand what joy they have right now. But even knowing they are joyful, even knowing that they are satisfied, we grieve, not hopelessly, but we grieve. Our hearts are sorrowed, burdened, weighed down. And so we uphold the Warren family with the departing of Brenda's mother, Ina Nystrom, and Don Dietrich's family in the departing of her mother, Janelle, his mother, Janelle. And we uphold the Sullivan family in the departing of A sweet and precious saint in our flock, Jean McCracken, whom you have seen fit to withhold from weekly fellowship for a number of years because of her declining health, and now she has received her reward. Our hearts are heavy, weighed with the burden of grief. And our hearts are heavy in other ways as well. Some of us are weighed down by sin. We know it's wrong. We know you have freed us from it. But we keep finding ourselves in the same place repeatedly. Some of us are struggling physically, physically. Think of Jonathan Goodner's family and his father who has been in and out of intensive care and on a ventilator in a precarious position, seemingly hanging between life and death for two weeks now. And the weight of those health issues and others in our body as well, wrestling through covid others with other health issues. And we recognize the frailty and the weaknesses of our bodies. And they are a burden to us. We physically suffer and we physically hurt. And it clouds our thinking and distracts us from seeing Christ and leaning on Him as we ought. Others of us are suffering in the ways that Paul describes in these verses. Not just have we sinned against others, but others have been volitional, intentional in their sin against us. They have hated us, despised us, persecuted us. And it is hard. Would you give us grace wherever we are today? To encourage our hearts, to strengthen us, to help us to see your glory, your provision. As I said earlier, the hardness of this passage is not the difficulty in understanding it, it's the difficulty in the doing of it. And would you work it in us in such a way that our enemies would see the light of the glory of Christ and turn to Him for their preservation from His wrath. And so would you give us endurance and boldness? Would you change us? And now, Father, would you also just give me clarity with these words, give me accuracy, give me in words that will encourage us as to what you might do through us would you keep me out of the way and help us to see the glory of christ in his redeeming power this morning we pray in christ's name amen we all have expectations for relationships we have desires about how those relationships will work and what we will receive through those relationships. However, we live in a fallen world, so our relationships will never work completely according to our plan. Our relationships will never live up to all of our expectations our relationships will always grapple with some kind of difficulty and our relationships will always need to improve. Aren't you encouraged this morning? <laughs> I have a lot of books on my shelf about relationships and most of them give at least a hint about the difficulties that we face in relationships in their titles. Consider this one. Relationships. A mess worth making or how about this one about communication war of words getting to the heart of your communication struggles or this one losing that lovin feeling <laughs> or picking up the pieces recovering from broken relationships or pursuing peace a christian guide to handling our conflicts or broken down house or what did you expect? Redeeming the realities of marriage and those realities may not be the kinds of realities that we're excited about, are they? We have relationships. We, uh, we want good relationships but relationships are hard And they're often broken because others sin against us. And that happens in Christian relationships. Think about what happens in our relationships with unbelievers who will sin against you and defraud you and be unconcerned about reconciling with you and be hostile towards you when you attempt to put things right. What will you do then? I, w- I was thinking about this even as I was reading the scriptures this morning. Second Timothy chapter 3. Realize this, that in last days difficult times will come. No amens on that? <laughs> you know what's interesting about that? He's not talking about circumstances. He's not talking about difficulties from institutions. Listen to what he says. Difficult days will come. For men will be lovers of self and lovers of money and boastful and arrogant and revilers and disobedient to parents and ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness though they have denied its power. All of those words explain and define the kinds of people with whom we have relationship. That's the difficult times. We live in those days. What do do you do? What do you do? Paul answers that question in Romans chapter 12. He answers it this way. When people are personally opposed to you, trust God. To do what is right. Paul is not here talking about institutions. He's not talking about people groups. He's not talking about culture. He's going to talk about some of those things in chapter 13. He's going to talk about institutions. He's going to talk about one of the institutions that weighs the heaviest on some of us, and that's the government. That's not his focus in these chapters. Here he's talking about people, individuals, people with whom we have relationship, people with whom we have regular contact, parents, children, spouses, neighbors, co-workers. When those people are opposed to you, When those people want to do you harm, when those people want to persecute you, when they want to see your destruction, what do you do? You trust God to do what is right. Paul, in these verses, will give us four principles for how to act when we are directly wronged by others. Four principles. First of them is given to us in verse 17. Do not respond in kind to evil. Do not respond in kind to evil. Instead, do what is good and right. Notice verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Paul is making a supposition in this verse that people will do harm to you, that people will do evil against you. Notice he doesn't say if Someone commits evil against you. But the supposition is that they will sin against you and that they will sin against you with malice. That word evil that he uses twice there is a word that means things that are morally reprehensible. It is a word that is often used in contrast to those things which are beautiful and beneficial and useful. It is everything... That we need, the the, the good things are the things that we need, the things that we want, the things that will help us, and this evil is everything that is contrary to that. It is to our harm, it is ugly, it is unuseful, it is destructive, and that is what people will do to us. And when we are sinned against in that way, and you will be, Paul says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. There is never a time when it is appropriate to retaliate against evil with similar evil. There is never a person against whom evil retaliation is appropriate. Notice his all-inclusive words in that verse. Never anyone No one. For the Jew, there is no Gentile against which it is appropriate. For the Gentile, there is no Jew for which it is appropriate to retaliate. No male, no female, no friend, no enemy, no believer, no unbeliever. No one receives our personal retribution. Now, why does Paul say this? Why does Paul say, never Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Because, brothers, you will be tempted to do that. He commands us to do it because it is the longing of the flesh to retaliate in kind. It feels good in the flesh You will be tempted to put others in harm's way when others have put you in harm's way. In fact, the Pharisees taught that that was the very thing that should be done. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The Pharisees taught, when someone does you, does you dirty, you do them back the same way. Jesus re- rejected that kind of retribution. Verse 39, the very next verse, But I say to you, in contrast to what the Pharisees say, Do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Jesus says there's no place for that kind of retribution. It's not just Jesus. It's the other New Testament writers as well. Consider First Peter chapter 3. The apostle says, In verse 9, never returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead for you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You have been called to inherit a blessing and because you are inheriting a blessing from God, you give a blessing to others even when they do not deserve it in your estimation. It's not just a New Testament teaching. It's an Old Testament teaching as well. Consider what Solomon says, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord and He will save you. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. As he does elsewhere in this passage Paul not only gives a negative command, but he gives the corresponding positive command. We find that at the end of verse 17. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Instead of paying back evil, respect what is right. The sense of the word respect is to think beforehand. To be preoccupied with. It's a mind word. Uh, That is, it's a word that would have us have our thoughts and our mind and our heart conform to what God says. Think carefully and plan. And what we should think carefully about and plan is that which is right. It's the good and beautiful things. Remember I said the word evil is a contrasting word to the word, to things that are beautiful and beneficial? That's the word that's here. So think about things when people are doing things to your destruction and doing things to your harm and things that are not useful to you. You should be thinking about doing things that are beneficial to them, helpful to them, beautiful for them. And then Paul says, in the sight of all men. He doesn't mean do what the masses think is right. <laughs> if you do what the masses think is right, you will inevitably end up in the wrong place. That's not what he means. He means do what is right so that even unbelievers will recognize that you are doing what is right. So Jesus says in Matthew 5, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I think Peter was thinking about that verse, that principle, when he writes this in verse 12 of 1 Peter 2. We read it earlier. Keep your behavior excellent among Gentiles. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, they see your good, right, beneficial, useful, beautiful response to their evil and they say, who is this God that makes people to do that? I want Him. And they repent and they can stand in the day of judgment before the Lord. Instead of extracting our pound or two of flesh with our own justice, we are concerned to do good things for everyone else, even our enemies. This is a principle that began way back in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 23. Exodus 23, Moses writes this in verses... 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. Now, if you see the ox or the donkey, isn't the temptation of the heart to say, Ha! He's lost his donkey. Isn't that a shame? Moses says, Take that donkey. Go out of your way. Take it back, so that he suffers no harm. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. The donkey's burdened down, weighed down. It's stuck. You're going to unload that donkey. You're going to get that donkey back on its feet, and you're going to get the goods to your enemy. Instead of of extracting our fleshly desires, we are concerned to do good, even for our enemies. When we are tempted to act in ungodly ways, we need to stop, brothers, sisters. Paul says we need to respect this. We need to think. We need to meditate We need to make a plan. Be careful here. (laughs) Not to plan for evil. need to make a plan for good. This one is out to destroy me. How can I bless him? You need to be strategic in thinking about how you can relate to that one who hates you so vehemently And your response is such that he comes to know Christ. How can you act in that way to be a testimony of Christ? Wives need to make a blessing plan for their husbands who are opposed to them. Employees need to make a blessing plan for their employers. Children need to make a blessing plan for their parents. Instead of reacting angrily to sin, friends, we need to strategize our godly responses. And we need to think about it ahead of time. A pastor of mine many years ago was prone to using the word predecide. Decide ahead of time what you're going to do. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Strategize, decide now. Think about now how you will respond when your enemy is against you. Whatever your challenging relationship, do what is right in the sight of God, so that all men will recognize that you have done what is right and see that as a testimony to them. Do not respond in kind to evil. Secondly. Be a peacemaker with everyone. I'm about to burst some of your bubbles. We do not live in a perfect world. I know that's news. And we are not perfect. I am not perfect. Your elders are not perfect. Wives, your husbands aren't perfect. But instead of demanding our rights and our justice, we need to examine our hearts and work to effect reconciliation with everyone. And so we need to ask the question I live in a fallen world and I live in a world where there are all kinds of problems. Am I the problem? I, I think often about G.K. Chesterton who Um, was responding to an editorial that said in the newspaper, oh, probably 100, 125 years ago now, it said, what is wrong with the world? And he responded with this simple letter, Dear Sir, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. When we think about peacemaking and we think about reconciling and we think about fixing broken relationships, we need to think first about ourselves And our problems. The command in this verse is really quite simple. And be at peace with all men. Notice that there is no limit to the extent of this command. We are to be peaceable with all people, bar none. Everyone. If you know and have interaction with anyone, you should be at peace with that person. Notice, in fact, that this is a present tense. Be at peace. And the present tense means that we should always be working to be peaceable. Whenever we have an opportunity to interact with someone, our default response should be peace, reconciliation, harmony, bringing back together. But that also implies something else also, doesn't it? It means, I think that the apostle would have us to understand that there are people who will be repeatedly against us in such a way that we will be challenged to constantly be at peace with them. In other words, the problem is not just that they will sin against you once, but that they will sin against you twice and three times and four times and repeatedly so much so that you lose count of how often they have sinned against you. As often as they sin against you, you should be ready to be peaceable, ready to confess your own sin, ready to forgive their sin. Brothers and sisters, if there is an impasse in the relationship, it should never be because of our refusal to be humble ourselves and to reconcile. If there is a breaking of harmony, if there's a breaking of fellowship, there should never be culpability on our heads. This verse reminds us of Jesus' words, doesn't it? Matthew 5. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. If you're a son of God, if you're God's child, if God is your father, Christ is your groom, Christ is your friend then you're a peacemaker that's your new identity you're a peacemaker and that is what we do the fruit of our salvation is that he has given peace to us and then we pursue that peace with others how many of you have been delighted by romans 5:1 therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with god Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10: We were his enemies, and we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. And even more, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. You have peace with God, God's no longer at war with you, He's your friend. And brothers, that's, that's our pursuit, that's our goal, that's our intention with others as well. We pursue peace because we've been given peace. There are two limitations on pursuing peace. Not the extent of it, because it goes to all people, to all men. But there are two limitations, and he identifies them in verse 18 one limitation is, he says, if it's possible. If possible. That is, there are times when in order to be peaceable, righteousness is going to have to be sacrificed, and we cannot sacrifice righteousness. We cannot, sanctify, we cannot, uh, we cannot sacrifice sanctification for the purpose of peaceability. We cannot sacrifice relationship with God for the sake of peace with others. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If it means, if peace means turning your back on Jesus Christ and not loving him, then, then we will not be able to be at peace. So don't sacrifice that. And the second limitation is this, so much as it depends on you. Not every sin is going to be reconciled. Sometimes, relationships stay broken. Some relationships stay unreconciled. Some of you are living with that. Some of you are living with the weight of it. And it's heavy, isn't it? Sometimes you will go to reconcile with others and they will not be truthful with you. They will not tell you About the issues that are between you, they will simply turn their back and walk away from you. There's nothing wrong. And you go back a second time, and you go back a third time, and you go back a fourth time, and you try to reconcile, and they've refused to admit there's a problem. In fact, they become angry because you're going back and trying to resolve it. They're unwilling to reconcile. Sometimes you will both recognize the sin. Sometimes the sin will be your sin. And you go and you confess it. And they will say to you, I'm unwilling to forgive it. I've heard people say it. I won't do it. You can ask for forgiveness. I'm not granting it. And you examine your heart and you try and find other ways to confess. And you expand the confession, and you go deeper with the confession, and they refuse to forgive. Or they say, yeah, 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 I forgive you, I forgive you. But if you think our relationship is ever going to be the same again, you can forget it. They'll say that, and then they'll act on it. You go again, and you go again, and you go again. And they refuse to reconcile. There are times when you try and bring peace to a situation and it can't happen. It just won't. Brothers, just make sure you've done everything you can to be at peace. So that the sin before the Lord is on their head and not your head. Being a peacemaker is hard work, isn't it? When I came as pastor, about 150 years ago, back when we used candles for light, wasn't quite that long ago, I used to think it was a lot simpler. Lots of ministry and lots of relationships has taught me it's a lot harder. It's hard work. You're going to have to sacrifice. There's going to be pain in your heart. But if you and I don't do it, who will? Who will stand for Jesus Christ? And who will say, I know a way out? I know a way to peace. I know a way to reconciliation. The world sure, sure won't. The world says that the closest relationships we have are an excuse not to worry about reconciliation. So the world says, Home is where people go when they're tired of being nice. <laughs> In other words, I'll be nice to you, but I don't have to be nice to my wife. Or they'll say this I like relationships, it's just people I can't stand. Or how about this song? I know you know this one. You always hurt the one you love, the one you shouldn't hurt at all. You always take the sweetest rose and crush it till the petals fall. You always break the kindest heart with a hasty word you can't recall. (laughs) So if I broke your heart last night, it's because I love you most of all. <laughs> what idiocy. Can I say that? <laughs> That's the way the world is, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, we've got an opportunity when people act that way to have a really different message. To say there's a way out, there's hope. God says peace in all of our relationships is our Responsibility. We must. We must. Be concerned with reconciliation. So in your relationships. Are you the initiator of reconciliation? I want you to think about the people. With whom you have interaction. I want you to think about. Husband or wife. I want you to think about children. Or parents coworkers friends extended family who are the people you know are you the initiator of reconciliation is there anyone from whom you are estranged what have you done to attempt to reconcile have you done anything to attempt to reconcile have you done everything to attempt to reconcile You may not be reconciled, that happens, but it should never be because of your lack of effort and my lack of effort. As believers in Christ, we should always be working for reconciliation. Said Tim Lane and Paul Tripp in their book, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. We enter relationships for personal pleasure, self-actualization, and fun. We want low personal cost and high self-defined returns. But God wants a high personal cost and high God-defined returns. And although we frequently disagree with God, His plan is always better. Beneath our conflict with others lies a deeper conflict between those two agendas, ours and God's. Going to pursue it your way? Going to pursue it his way. Always be a peacemaker with everyone. Thirdly, never be vengeful. In case we have missed the point, Paul is exceedingly clear in verse nineteen, isn't he? Never take your own revenge, beloved. Never take revenge yourself. You have not been positioned to take the law into your own hands. There is no place for personal retribution. To take revenge is a sin because we set ourselves up both as the law and the judge. And listen to what James says about that. James chapter 4 verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge. The one who is able to save and to destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? There's only one who has made the law. There's only one who can judge on the basis of that given law. Who are you to do that? When we take revenge ourselves, we are baptizing our sin with moral righteousness. And friends, we don't have that authority. We are unqualified to take revenge. Notice again Paul's emphasis. There is never a right time to take personal revenge. Now having said that, there is a place when you have been sinned against to turn to those who can help you. That's chapter 13 and the government. And so there is a place when a woman is being violated in her own home that she can pick up the phone and dial 911 and get the authorities involved. I've counseled that many times. That's not personal retribution. That's using the means that God has established on this earth to bring about justice on this earth. And that's legitimate. What Paul is talking about here is personal vengeance and that is always illegitimate and notice that when he says this he adds a little word that we might not have expected never take your own revenge beloved and paul sticks that word in beloved often when he is saying hard things when he is saying difficult things to remind to remind the readers, hey, I'm in this with you. We're Remember our kindredness. Remember our brotherhood. Remember the love that we have for one another. This isn't personal animosity between us. I understand this is hard, but I'm speaking to this to you in love. But he is also reminding them of another kind of love, isn't he? He can say, Never pay back for evil for evil. Never take your own revenge because we are loved by God. Now we can say that in this room. Hey, brother. Hey, friend whom I love. Be careful. Don't go there. Watch your heart. But Paul, I think, is taking it a step beyond that and saying, remember, you have been loved by God. You are loved by God. And that has two implications. One is that because we have been loved by God with an undeserved love from Him, we can give an undeserved love to others. Remember, you're, you're beloved not because you are great, not because you are supreme, not because you are best or greatest. You are loved in spite of you. And you can give that same kind of love to others. And then I think a second implication is that because God loves them, they can trust Him to do what is right. God will always do what is right for you. You're loved by God. And His love for you will not allow Him to do what is eternally harmful for you. That doesn't mean life will always be easy. But it does mean that he will never hate you and do anything out of retribution or anger against you because he loves you. You can trust him. And that actually is where he goes next. Never take revenge yourself. Always, always let God enact his justice in his time. Leave room for the wrath of God. Because it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. How does God take. How does God pour out his wrath against sinners? He does it. He does it by taking sinners who are unrepentant and rebellious against them, against him, and he puts them in a place of unrelenting, undiminished, unending wrath and justice against them. Where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth unrelentingly. When you and I set ourselves up to pour out vengeance on others, we're saying, God's hell is not enough, but I have a retribution that is greater than God's hell. Let me take it out on them. Brothers and sisters, you don't have to worry. If they are unrepentant, God will take care of it. He'll balance the sheet in ways that you and I never can. On this earth, we look at a lot of things and we say, it's not fair, it's not right. That's right, it's not. But just because we don't see the balance sheet getting corrected doesn't mean it doesn't get corrected. God will fix it. There's a second way God pours out his wrath, isn't there? He pours out his wrath on Christ for us in our place. So Christ absorbs it. I was talking to a friend yesterday. Said, man, the older I get, the more I cry. <laughs> it's pathetic. But it just grips my heart of what I deserve and what Christ absorbed for me. Untimely words, ungracious words, unkind words, hostile words. sins of the mind, sins of the flesh. All kinds of stuff. Dozens of times a day. And Christ took every one of them. And He will do that for any man who trusts in Him. Here's the danger. When we take justice into our own hands and we attempt to pour out wrath on others in God's place, that action may be precluding the activity of God's grace in that person's life. And we've pulled the plug on grace and we've removed the opportunity for grace that we've received So I get grace, but none for you. Really? Is that the way we want to live? Oh, brothers, leave room for God's wrath. And that means you trust God to do what is right. Justice will always be served against every sin. There is not a single sin that has ever been committed or will be committed that won't be balanced correctly in eternity. Either every sin is laid on Christ and He will wipe them clean or those sins will be paid for in eternity in hell. And either way, God's justice will be served. You don't have to worry about it. You can trust Him. If there's retribution that needs to be poured out, leave it to him. He'll do it, he'll take care of it. That's countercultural, isn't it? It's really about to get countercultural in verses 20 and 21. Be gracious by blessing your enemies. Not only do we not do evil against our enemies, but these verses affirm that we are to do good to our enemies. We are to bless them. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless. Don't curse. Bless. Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, make sure that you get to this grocery store before he does and buy out all the chicken. sometimes i wonder if that's not what's happening if your enemy's hungry feed him if he's thirsty give him a drink remember that passage exodus 23 that i referred to a few minutes ago if your ox see if you see your enemy's ox take it to him it's not really costing you anything it's costing you a little bit of time this is costly i'm not just i'm not just restoring what already is his I'm taking what's mine and I'm giving it to my enemy. Now, if you all show up at my house and say, hey, I'm hungry. I'm all over that. Come on in. Let me clean out the fridge. Let me open the freezer and see what I've got in the freezer. Let me open the pantry. I'll I'll feed you. I love you. Now the enemy shows up at the house. What are you going to do then? You're going to pour out what is beneficial to him at a cost to you. You're going to meet his most basic and pressing need. It means that your most basic emotional response to your enemy is not anger, but compassion. One of the things that has helped me in this area, and I struggle with this just like you do, But one of the things that has helped me is to recognize that if my enemy is an unbeliever, he's trapped. He's ensnared. He's in bondage to his sin and he can't get out. How could I expect him to act any differently? How could I expect him to do anything more? And that... Leads me to be compassionate and not angry against my enemy that 's what Paul would have us to know here compassion gentleness grace this 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 is um, verse nineteen or excuse me verse twenty is a quotation actually from proverbs twenty five You need to go back this afternoon and read proverbs twenty five that whole chapter really focuses on humility and how we respond to others in humility. And this is is really the the climax of that chapter. And we respond in humility to them as an expression of our compassion for them. Listen to what the commentator Charles Bridges says about that passage in Proverbs 25. He says, Unless we are ready with a practical exercise of sympathy feeding him when he is hungry and giving him a drink when he is thirsty then we are only victims of our own self-delusion. What happens when we feed them give them something to drink? Proverbs 25 tells us in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Now there's a lot of question about what that means. I think simply what What Solomon means, and I think what Paul means, is that when we act compassionately against sinners, against those who are enemies, we put them in a situation where they understand the difference between what they have done to us and what we have done to them, and it shames them to the point where they repent. Now remember, proverbs are proverbs. They're not guarantees. So they are things that are generally true. They are not always true. So when you act this way, in general, it should propel people to repentance and change and transformation. It shames them into humility before God. But it's not a guarantee. It doesn't always become that way. But I think what Paul would have us to understand here is that in doing these things, we are working towards the goal of their salvation. We're more concerned about their salvation than we are about our personal retribution. We're more interested in where they will spend eternity than what we will receive here on earth. And so we will pour out good deeds on them in an effort to open the door of evangelistic speech and evangelistic compelling and calling. And let me also just acknowledge this is hard. Isn't it? This is hard. Some of you are living right now in really challenging situations. This isn't theory. This is reality for you. Let me just reaffirm again that this does not mean that you cannot pursue legal protection. You can. That's why God has given us the government to protect ourselves when we cannot protect ourselves but it does absolutely mean you can't take the law into your own hands. He's not called you to do that. This is hard. You will never do it on your own. But you will do it by the Spirit. Remember Romans 8? I know that was like 12 years ago. Romans 8 verse 4. So that the requirement of the law... Might be fulfilled in us. In other words, we can fulfill the law's requirements. We can do what the law calls us to do who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, no one is ever going to fulfill the law entirely, but the unbeliever can never do anything to please the Lord and fulfill the law, fulfill God's calling. But Paul says, under the domination of the Spirit, you can do things that please the Lord. You can do things like never taking your own revenge. And what happens when you do that? Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. When you are compassionate towards your enemy, it proves... That you are not overcome by evil, and in fact it becomes the mechanism for freeing you from evil. That word overcome actually is a word that comes from the, the root word victory, nike or Nike. It's the word victory. When you are compassionate, you you're victor over evil. And you overcome evil by the good. Oh, brothers, it's victory in that sometimes those who are enemies and we are compassionate to them come to know Christ as Savior. And it's also victory for us in that we don't become like them and we don't do evil in kind. Many times I've exhorted others. Many times I've spoken to my own heart when suffering unjustly and said, don't become bitter like they are. Don't don't engage in bitterness. Don't become vengeful. You trust the Lord. Don't let your heart be corrupted. That'll be loss, not victory. Many years ago, the Puritan Matthew Henry wrote in his journal these words after he was robbed let me be thankful. First, because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took it all, it was not much. Fourth, because it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. Yeah, that's a victory. Oh, brothers, you will be sinned against. Others will do evil to you. Others will seek to destroy you. Be gracious and giving when sinned against by unbelievers. And then trust God. And that will be to their advantage and to yours. Father, I said earlier that this passage is hard. It is. It turns everything on its head about what the flesh wants to do. But we know it's right. Would you help us to do what is right? Would you give us freedom from evil? Would you give us victory over evil by never being vengeful and always being peaceable so that others may see our good works, repent, and glorify you on the day of your visitation when you come back? And hold all men accountable for their sin. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.